Well, good morning. In his book, uh, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, famed atheist and evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins writes these words. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, tell me how you really feel, Richard, right? But I will say, you know what I like about Dawkins, and there isn't a ton, but what I like about Dawkins is he, unlike many of the atheists I read or many of the atheists I interact with, he is honest about the fact that a world that exists without God is a world that exists without meaning. That a world without God is a world without ultimate meaning. Now, this is certainly not to say that the atheists can't experience meaning in this life because we all know that they do. But what it does say is that, is that the meaning that they are experiencing, according to their worldview, is fraudulent. It's, 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 an, it's illusory. It's make-believe. It's a created meaning that's not rooted in anything. When I used to teach senior government at O'Connor High School, Every once in a while, I'd come in, and the students would come in on a Friday, and we'd have what we called Philosophy Fridays. And we would take the first part of class, and on the whiteboard in there, I would have some, like, philosophical or moral or theological question that we would engage with. And one of the questions I would always ask each one of my classes every year is, what is the source of meaning in your life? What is the source of meaning? Where do you get value? And so the students would talk about it, and they would ultimately always say, yes, we have meaning, and yes, we have value, but they would really struggle in regards of why. They wouldn't be able to tell me why we matter and why we have value. And I would ask them this question for two reasons. First of all, I wanted them to really think about it, because so few people really do. I wanted them to think about what is the foundation for meaning in my life. And then the second reason I would ask my students this is because I knew that I would have young men and women sitting in those desks who, when asked that question, inside said, you know what, coach, I don't have any meaning. I don't have any value. As a matter of fact, I don't even know why I am living. And so this was an opportunity for me to get to speak into their life. So they would banner about, and they would, we would, you know, we would, we would dialogue a little bit. And then they'd say every time, all right, coach, you tell us. What do you think? What do you think? And this was my open door. They're asking me. And so I would quote, I would maybe read out of Genesis. Genesis 1, I said, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And then I would look at my students and I would say, I think you guys have infinite meaning and I think you guys have infinite value because you were created by an infinite God. And then I would take a minute and explain what infinite means. <laughs> so I would end up saying, look, you are, are valuable because you are made in the image of God. That is what makes you unique. I said, I don't care how many touchdowns you score. I don't care what your class rank is. I don't care how popular you are. I don't care how big your truck is. 
You are not a tree. You are not a rock. You are not a river. God made you uniquely because God made you in his own image. And you can't add value to yourself and you cannot subtract value from yourself because you are not the one who gives value. That is God's job. And it is in him that we derive our meaning and it is in him that we find our value. And then we would talk about our government and get depressed all over again. <laughs> now we hear a story like this in church and our response is like, amen, preach it, come on. But the question that follows is what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I mean, what does that even mean? This is a topic that throughout church history, copious amounts have been written about. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And it's been written about by people much smarter than myself. But from my readings and from my study, I feel like I can derive two major facets of what it means to be made in the image of God. Two major connection points. And number one is what we just talked about. Being made in the image of God gives us meaning and purpose and value and dignity that is rooted in God. In other words, we have a real basis for our belief in the sanctity of the human life. That's from the unborn baby to the most senior of senior citizens and everyone in between. Every single person has value because every single person is created in the image of God. And they have value. And number two, being made in the image of God reveals our function. It reveals how we are to function. You see, I don't just derive my value from him, but in him I see how I was made to function as someone who is made in his image. Meaning, if God exists in Trinity then who he is in Trinity is going to inform me of who I was created to be in my humanity. Who God is in Trinity is going to inform me who I am to be in my humanity. Because understanding who God is will not just explain why we exist and who we are as persons, but it will also educate us on how we may be most satisfied in this life. And that's something that every person in the pews and every single person outside those doors wants is to be satisfied in this life. And I think that the Trinity is what unlocks that. So with that being said, here's what I want to do this morning. We are entering into week three of our four-part series on the doctrine of Holy Trinity. And in week one, we looked at what is the doctrine of Trinity, why we believe it, and how it developed in the early church. We came back last week and we looked at the Trinity specifically in salvation. In salvation. We looked at the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit within salvation. This week, what I want to talk about is what is called intra-Trinitarian relationships. Intra-Trinitarian relationships, meaning the relationships that exist within the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because through that, we're going to focus on four ways in which who God is in Trinity tells us who we are in our humanity. Okay? Four ways in which we mirror God or reflect who He is. 
Now, you may be saying, now, Michael, how do we as finite creatures mirror an infinite God? I mean, it's not exactly an apples to apples, is it? For starters, Michael, I want to clue you in on something. We don't even exist in Trinity. We don't even exist in Trinity. And yet, even the fact that God does tells us something very profound. And this leads to our first reflection. Which is, we are created for deep, meaningful relationships. Because there are deep, meaningful relationships within the Trinity. Our God is deeply, deeply personal and relational. We see this all throughout Scripture, but we've been focusing on the Gospel of John. So I'll take you to chapter 5, starting in verse 19. John writes, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Notice the relationship between the Father and the Son. They know one another intimately. They seek to honor one another. They are with one another. We see the same thing when it comes to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, a text we looked at two weeks ago as Jesus is teaching on the Spirit. And this is what he says. But when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The relationships that exist within the Trinity are deeply, deeply personal. And what's fascinating to think about is those relationships existed before time and space were created. So before anything existed that was external to the Trinity... God was alone, and yet he existed in community. He exists eternally in relationship, which is powerful. And so now think about your life. We have discussed that because you are made in the image of God, you have infinite value. And yet also because you were made in the image of God, you were created to be in relationship First with him and then with one another. You know what's interesting is when I would ask this question to my seniors in high school, the number one answer I would always get every year is they would say, Coach, meaning comes through relationships. Relationships. There is a yearning inside each one of us to be known and to be loved. And there is a yearning inside each and every one of us for deep, meaningful relationships. And those yearnings are not evolutionary. They are Trinitarian. They're not evolutionary. They're Trinitarian. It's a result of being made in the image of a God that exists in relational community with himself. 
Our God is deeply, deeply personal and relational, and so are we. And this is profoundly important when it comes to how we are to invest and live our lives. Because I understand that relationships can be messy. And relationships are hard. And, and, the easy, and they can lead to heartache and rejection. And the easy thing to do is just to choose not to engage. And, and, and isolate. But you were not created for isolation. You were created for relationships. And that's both the introvert and the extrovert. I'm not telling you you need 10,000 friends. I'm telling you you're created to be in relationship. First with God and then with one another. And because of that, we are to invest our life in deep, meaningful, Christ-centered, God-honoring relationships that both reflect the Trinity and glorify the Trinity. We reflect it and we glorify it in relationship. And so just in terms of wayside, I would prayerfully consider joining a small group. My family is in, a, is in a life group here on campus, here at Wayside, and it has been immensely, it's just been such a blessing for us, walking with other families in this church in an intimate way. We have been ministered to greatly. I would encourage everybody to really seek out and plug in with an adult Bible study fellowship, an ABF. Plug in with student ministries. Our men's pastor, Stephen Lay, is starting a men's discipleship network that's really taking off. Join in with that. Really get to know other men within the congregation. Look for fellowship at work or at school or on your block. Find community that both reflects the Trinity and glorifies it because that is what you are created to do. So mirror image number one. As God and Trinity exist eternally in relationship, we who are created in His image are also created for relationship. First with Him, and then with one another. Mirror image number two. As there is authority and submission within the Trinity, there is authority and submission within God's people in the family and the church. Two weeks ago when we started reading, I encouraged you to read the Gospel of John. And as you read the Gospel of John... One of the things I said you would notice is an incredible emphasis by John on the Trinity. And hopefully you've seen that. Another thing you will notice is a consistent pattern of submission by the Spirit and especially by Christ to that of the Father. 22 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about how he comes from the Father. 44 times alone in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about how he has been sent by the Father, how he has come to do the will of the Father. John 4.34 is just an example of this. You could have gone so many places where Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So at the very least, we really must affirm that Jesus is submissive to the Father at least in his earthly ministry. Now that might make you uncomfortable. Because you're thinking, wait a second, Marco, you've been teaching on the Trinity. And I remember in week one, I took notes. And you said there's three things we must affirm in the Trinity. Singularity, plurality, and equality. 
Now, how should I understand equality when it comes to knowledge like this or a text in John 14 where Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. What are we to do with a text like that? Well, when we talk about equality within the Trinity, we are speaking of an equality of essence, not roles. Essence, nature. Remember our definition from week one. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. Look at the last part. Identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. So let me ask you a question. If the distinctions within the Godhead are not a matter of essence or nature which we described as the, as, as the godness, the things that makes God, God. If it's not a matter of essence, then what makes them distinct? And the answer is their function. And their function is fleshed out in their relationships and in the roles of the Godhead. It's the relationships and the roles of the Trinity that makes them distinct. We talked about this some last week. Within salvation, the Father as the sender, the Son as the sacrifice, and the Spirit as the sealer. We see this in the idea of marriage. I celebrated my marriage yesterday, my anniversary, my sixth anniversary with my wife, Victoria. Now, what is the distinction between us? We're both human. We both are identical in terms of our value before God. So it's not a difference of essence between Victoria and I. It's a difference of role. I am the husband and she is the wife. And here's my point, And this is what I want you to hear. This is really important. Just because each member of the Trinity has the same divine nature with the same divine attributes does not mean they have the same divine roles. It does not mean that. And it does not mean that there cannot be a structure of authority and submission within the Trinity. This is why Jesus can do the will of the Father and submit to the Father and yet not be less than the Father. A difference in role, even if it involves submission, does not equate to a difference in equality. That's my point. And I see this as having great meaning for us here on earth. Because we need to understand that submission is not a dirty word. It's not a bad thing. It's not rooted in some antiquated patriarchal society. It's rooted in the Trinity. Now this can be really uncomfortable. Because authority and submission are about as countercultural as we can get in America in 2015. I mean, this is leave it to beaver stuff, right? We despise authority. We despise the idea of submission. Many people within the church say, you've got to stop talking about authority and submission if you want to stay relevant. You can't even talk about it anymore. But I can't do that. And here's why. Because both authority and submission are good for both are expressive of God himself. They are both expressive of God himself. And I know you may disagree with me. And the truth is, is that some churches and entire denominations disagree with the implications I see in regards to this. 
And that's their prerogative. And one day, our theology will be perfected, right? But no matter where you land, I want you to reflect on this fact. That within the Trinity, authority and submission are present and yet lived out with love and joy. And I think that matters greatly. I think that matters greatly. Because submission is not bad. It is biblical. We are told to submit to one another. In the book of Ephesians, we are told to submit to Christ. Children are told to submit to their parents. Romans 13 tells us to submit to the government. And in Ephesians 5, we are told that the, hus- that the wife is to submit to the husband. There are two places in Scripture that emphasize male leadership. That's the family and the church. Those are the two places that Scripture points to. And yet this does not change the fact that men and women are fully equal in essence, fully equal in value, fully equal in dignity, and fully equal in their worth. Because the quality of essence does not conflict with the distinction of roles. This is true for the Trinity, and this is true for us in our humanity. Both are essential, both are honoring to God, and both are to be celebrated. Now let me say a few things, because I know this is a tough topic, and it's especially tough to go through in just a few minutes. First off, submission should never require you to sin. It should never require you to sin. Though there exists submission amongst us, we are all told to submit above all to Christ. And so submission should never involve us having to sin. Secondly, abuse is not okay. Verbal, physical, sexual abuse, those are not okay. And you do not submit to that type of leadership. Biblical submission does not mean do whatever that person says. That's not what biblical submission is. Lastly, submission, biblical submission also doesn't mean that you no longer have a voice, you no longer have an opinion, you're no longer valued. Not at all. Look at the Trinity. As the Son submits to the Father, He does it freely, willingly, joyfully. That's what He does. He is honored. His opinion matters. So much so that the Father heaps praise on Him. The Father gives Him the judgment. The Father makes His name the name above all names. We don't lose who we are when we submit. We become more of who we are. Just like Christ freely chooses to submit. Because that's who He is. Now as for those in positions of authority, leadership does not mean superiority. The same text in Ephesians 5 that says, Wives, submit to your husband. says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So authority doesn't mean dominance. It means leadership. And leadership modeled after Christ is a leadership defined by sacrifice and service. That's what it looks like. Where the needs of others come first. When authority and submission is modeled after the relationships within the Trinity is a good thing. When it is abused and sin is pervasive and God knows that has happened so many times, it becomes like anything else that sin touches. Perverted, distorted, and destructive. That's what sin does. It distorts, it perverts, and it destructs. But we do not let the distortion of something good negate It's goodness. We do not let the distortion of something good negate its goodness. We cannot let the devil defeat or distort God's design. 
So whether you were asked to lead or submit, please take comfort in the fact that God is not asking you to do anything he doesn't do himself. He leads and he submits. And he does it with joy and he does it with love and he does it with humility. And so should we. So thus far, we've seen two reflections, two mirror images of God and Trinity. We've talked about our need for relationship, and we've talked about authority submission. And this brings us to reflection number three, which is the self-giving nature of God. A few years ago, I had a friend contact me, and he said, Michael, I'm not a Christian anymore. He just, he'd given up on his faith. He said, I'm not a Christian. And this, is not a, this, is, this was not done on a whim. This is a deep, thoughtful guy. And so when I engaged with him, he gave a number as to why. He gave a number of reasons why, but I was struck by one of the reasons he gave. He said, God is selfish. He's selfish. He's a hypocrite. And he, and he read me 1 Corinthians 13, what you hear at weddings, where it says, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered. And then this guy said, Michael, that is exactly what God does. That's exactly what God does. He does the opposite of what he tells us to do. He tells us to act one way, and he does a complete different thing. He's jealous for his glory. He does seek his own praise, and he does keep an account of wrongdoing. So God is a hypocrite. Now, how are we to respond to that? Now, some may respond by saying, hey, dude, he's God. He wins, right? No, he gets to define himself. No, he, he's sovereign. It's his prerogative. He can do what he wants. And that is true. And yet that doesn't answer the question, does it? For though we affirm the sovereignty of God, we also believe that he is infinitely relational and personal. And though we affirm that he is a God of judgment, we also believe that he is loving. As a matter of fact, he believes that. He writes it in 1 John 4. God is love. So how can God be loving and yet be a God of judgment? How can he be loving and humble and yet seek his own glory and his own praise? Well, this may surprise you, but I think the answer is that he exists in Trinity. One of the remarkable things we see in the Trinity is how each member freely gives of himself to one another. They freely give of themselves to one another. And this is really special. Please do not assume, because there's one God who exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that they are therefore obligated to do what they do. Like, I guess I have to be kind to the Father because I'm the Son. No. No. What Scripture presents is actually relationships within the Godhead that do not take place automatically, but freely. Freely. Think about that. Freely. Free choices within the Godhead. Think of a text like John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock and one shepherd. 
For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Look at verse 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. What a passage. Look, look what's in this passage. Look at the relationship between the Father and the Son. There's intimate knowledge of one another. The Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. There's authority and submission as the Son carries out the commandment that it received from the Father, but He carries out the commandment freely as He chooses to lay down His life for the sheep. Because that's what He wants to do. All along the way, seeking to honor the other. Seeking to honor the other in the relationship. And as you read the New Testament, what you begin to see is each divine member of the Godhead seen in personal acts of self-giving to one another. The Father entrusts all the judgment to the Son. The Son does the judgment and gives it back to the Father. The Spirit seeks to praise and glorify the Father and the Son, and yet the Son sends the Spirit to be the constant helper and to be the access point to go through Him to the Father. They seek to glorify one another in a love that is completely self-giving. And I see this as incredibly significant for two reasons. Number one, love at its core is intra-Trinitarian. It's a love that exists within the Godhead. It's a love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as they freely give of themselves to one another. So when I think about my friend... And his idea that God is selfish, the answer is how can God be loving and jealous for his own glory? Because he exists in Trinity. Because he exists in Trinity. And within the Trinity, they love one another and they give of themselves one another and they seek to bring praise and honor and glory to one another. So they are jealous for their glory, but it's an other focused in acts of divine love. Follow me here. I even think, and you can call me crazy, that's fine. I even think that the judgment of God, which is real, there will be judgment. I think the judgment of God is connected to an intra-Trinitarian love. Because as they seek to honor one another in, in self-giving love, one of the ways they honor one another is you will not Bring sin to impugn on the holiness of God. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do it to the Father. You're not going to do it to the Son. You're not going to do it to the Holy Spirit. So I even see eternal judgment as connected to intra-Trinitarian love, if that makes sense. So that's significant. Secondly, this truth is significant because we are created in His image and we reflect who He is. And this idea of giving oneself away, this idea of giving of yourself to God or giving of yourself to others, you ever heard that within Christianity? You ever heard that within the teachings of Jesus? When he's asked the greatest commandment, what does he basically say? Love God and love one another. You ever heard Jesus say things like, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for my sake will find it or will gain it. You ever heard anything like that? Good. All right. Good. There's paradoxes in the Christian life, and this is one of them. 
Cuban evangelist B.G. Lavastida puts it this way. I love this quote. He says, there are three paradoxes of the Christian life. You must give in order to receive. You must let go in order to possess. And you must die in order to live. You must give in order to receive. You must let go in order to possess. And you must die in order to live. And yet culture tells us the exact opposite. Culture says, get, get, get. Possess, possess, possess. Me, me, me. But Christ says, give your life away. Give it away. Give it to God. Give it to others. Make it about God and one another. And on the surface, it would be easy to see this self-sacrifice ethic as something Christians just do to show their piety. Kind of, you know, we got to sacrifice because we're Christians. And that's what we do. And Jesus told us to, so I guess I will. (laughs) But that is the wrong way to look at it. That's the wrong way to look at it. Because this is not a sacrifice of self that removes our joy, but one that improves our joy. We are not designed to give of ourselves to one another. We are, excuse me, designed to give of ourselves to God and one another. And if we do not do this, we will not experience the fullness of life. It's not an ethic that we are trying to maintain. It's that I'm made in the image of a God that gives. It's a huge difference. It's a paradigm shift. And when we understand the self-giving nature of our triune God, we, we see that the very thing that Jesus commands us to do is what has always been done in the Trinity. As each is engaged in a self-giving, freely choosing, other-honoring pattern of love. And I think that is powerful. I think that is so powerful. Well, we're running short on time. We could look at many more things. But I want to close this morning by looking at one more way that we mirror God. And that involves the triune mission of God. The mission of redemption. We spoke about this mission last week, if you recall. When we spoke about the Trinity and salvation, we discussed how the Father designs and initiates the plan of redemption. And how the Son comes as that special ops. And it's the sacrifice for our sins, securing our salvation. And then we talked about our Holy Spirit helicopter. You remember that? Holy Spirit coming in and applying the work of Christ and then taking us home and ministering to us. And the words of Scott Harrell, who was my Trinitarianism professor in seminary, who had a huge impact on me. He wrote these words. The redemptive mission of God is the expression of God himself. Think about that. The redemptive mission of God is the expression of God himself. So the redemptive mission of God becomes the essential expression of faith in the life of the believer. For the Christian, if there is no mission, there is no life. If there is no mission, there is no life. Each and every one of us have a part to play in the mission of redemption because each and every one of us have been saved has been saved by this mission. And now we have been commissioned in this mission of redemption in Matthew 28. As Jesus tells the disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. And so like the Father who sent the Son, we send out people to do God's work in God's world, covering them with prayer and supporting them with our money. And like the son who came, we go. We go. 
We take the gospel of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, both across our street and across our world, meet, seeking to meet both physical and spiritual needs. And like the Spirit who seals and indwells, we stay. We stay. And we enter into lifelong relationships with people in the name of Christ, investing in them and ministering, them and ministering to them and pointing them to Christ like the Holy Spirit does. It's the people of God who are the image of God expressing the triune mission of God. It's what it is. It's the mission of God and it's a mission of redemption that we have received and now we reflect as we engage a world that needs Jesus. We give of ourselves in relationships. We give of ourselves in authority and submission. We give of ourselves to the mission of God. We give of ourselves not because Wayside Chapel tells you to. Not because some guy standing behind a pulpit is enlightened to something. We do these things because that is who God is. That is who God is. And we, as those who are made in His image, are made to reflect who He is. To reflect a God that gives. Because He has given us life, has given us meaning, has given us design, ultimately has given us salvation, and He gave it to us through a giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The mark of a God that gives. And that is what we are about to celebrate as we come to the communion table and we commemorate the giving that God gave that day 2,000 years ago. For as John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Him, the self-giving God, giving His only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so that's what we do when we come to communion. You know, we've talked a lot this morning about us being made in the image of God and we are to reflect Him. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, at best, we're distorted reflections, aren't we? Sin has distorted the reflection for each and every one of us. I love reading through the prophet, of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah, a guy who was a prophet at a time where it was not fun to be a prophet in Israel. And Jeremiah writes about the human heart, and here's what he says. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because of that, we deserve death. Like a broken mirror that gets tossed out in the trash heap, never to be heard from or seen again. But God is into making treasures out of trash, isn't he? He's the ultimate in restoration hardware. And so the Father sent, and so the Son came, and so the Spirit stays. And because of that, we are more than just image bearers of a triune God. We can be adopted members within God's own family. And if you have never received this free gift of salvation that comes by grace through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit that stir in your hearts and that you would come home for the first time, that you would receive that gift of forgiveness of sins. 
and that you would be removed from the trash and the rubble and become a trophy case of grace, a trophy of grace on display for all to see. As the men come down and pass out the elements now, you're going to receive a cup and you're going to receive a little piece of bread. The cup represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. The bread represents his body that was given for us. And these elements are to be shared by all of those in here who have come to that place, that place of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. As you receive these, please take a moment to just thank God for his triune act of redemption, to thank Christ for being our sacrifice. If there's any sin that you need to confess, this is the time and space for you to go before him and confess those sins. Please hold on to the elements and we'll take these together when that time comes.
when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized. And John 1.29 says that John said, There he goes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What you hold in your hand is nothing more than a piece of bread. But what it represents is oh so much more. It, re- it represents the eternal second member of the Trinity, God the Son, who took on flesh, walked amongst us, and died for our sins. Eat this in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup. It's a cup of grape juice. But once again, what it represents is something so much deeper than that. As Hebrews 9.22 says, For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. And so God, because of his holiness, had to do something. And yet God, in his love, had to do something. So Jesus came and died, displaying the righteousness of God. And Jesus came and died, displaying the love of God. Drink this in remembrance of him. Will you please join me as I close this in prayer? God, what meaning you give this life? There is meaning in nothing else. You are the source of all meaning. You are the source of all good. You are the source of all value. And you made us immensely valuable, not because of what we can do or how smart we are, but because we're made in your image and you have bestowed infinite value upon your creatures. And God, not only made in your image, we are called on, we are made to reflect who you are in this life. And so often, God, we are mirrors that are broken and distorted and and messed up, and you knew that. And that is why you sent the Son, Jesus Christ, as the forgiveness for sins. That's why you did the work of bringing about salvation to restore us back to you and take us from mirrors broken, thrown in the garbage to mirrors on display as a trophy of grace. And God, you are so good to us. And when we see you in community, when we see you as the one God who exists as three persons in relationships of deep, self-giving love, where there's just such beauty, God, we are in awe of you and we see how we are created to function. Help us be the church that reflects you and the people that reflect the goodness of who you are and help us go out into the world as part of your mission, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this morning and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've got prayer partners who would love to chat with you. I'll be up here. Have a wonderful Sunday. With the beautiful weather that Stephen talked about. And we'll see you back next week.